When he woke up, he was surprised that he felt no pain. He even had the curious feeling that the fall had done him some good. He felt unbelievably light and airy. He walked through spangles of glittering cobwebs without the faintest idea of where he was going. Fireflies started into his nose and ears and reemerged from his eyes with their lights undimmed. He walked for a long time. Then he saw another signboard which read, Delta Oil Company, trespassers will be persecuted. That was an excerpt from Ben Oakley's short story, What the Tapster Saw, from his collection of stories, Stars of the New Curfew, read by Chimdi Ihazia. And this is Novel Climate, a podcast about literature, the environment, and people. I'm Megan Modafferi. I'm a graduate student interested in the stories we tell about climate change. And today, we're talking about oil. I'm going well. I'm going shell. Good heavens, I know that voice. I'm going well on shell, shell, shell. It's Bing Crosby. That was Bing Crosby for Shell Petroleum in a 1960 ad. And believe it or not, there's a whole subfield of cultural studies focused on oil. It's called petroculture or petrocultural studies. And one of the core ideas in the field is that oil is hidden in plain sight. Literary theorist Amitav Ghosh talks about how we don't have a great American oil novel. Even though oil is so central to the global economy and to all of our lives, because very few people actually know almost anything about the production of oil, how it works, what it looks like, what the human experiences around it are. So even though we encounter oil all the time through our consumption of it, the story of its origins, of its impacts at the source of its production, is rarely imagined or made visible in media or storytelling. But this experience of oil production seeming to be hidden behind a curtain, it's not the same everywhere you go. And in the short story we're looking at today, we'll see some very visible human and environmental consequences related to that production. Like I mentioned, the story is called What the Tapster Saw, and it's by the Nigerian-British novelist Ben Okri. It takes place in the Niger Delta of Nigeria, a region known for its oil, and less so, for related damage to environmental and human health. And it's a magical realist story, which means it combines realistic settings and storytelling methods with fantastical or magical elements. We're going to talk more about that, and about the pushback against the category of magical realism. But for now, I just want to link it back to petroculture. Because many scholars and journalists have pointed out that there's a fairy tale or magic narrative often associated with oil. This cultural story tells us that oil, once discovered in a region, will bring wealth to that region. It's a rags-to-riches Cinderella story where there won't be consequences and there will always be enough. So literary scholar Jennifer Wenzel, drawing on the work of anthropologist Fernando Coronil, calls this false promise petro-magic. Because contrary to that narrative, geographic and political economist Michael Watts and many others have pointed out a wide range of damage associated with oil extraction across ecological, economic, social, and political spheres. And bringing these ideas together, Wenzel writes about petro-magic realism, the idea that the complex networks of violence surrounding oil production can be brought to light through literature, and that the magical realist form specifically 
can expose as a fairy tale the ideas promoted by the oil companies and various state actors of oil as wealth without consequence or end. So that's the sort of broad strokes of what we're working with today. But before we get into the short story, we'll take a step back to talk with Omaladi Adunbi, a political anthropologist who can tell us about the history and geopolitics of oil in the Niger Delta, the real-world context framing the fictional story. Then we'll talk about the short story in depth with literary scholar Rose Casey. And finally, we'll talk more broadly about African literature and the connections between people and the environment with African literature scholar Kajitan Ieka. So here we go. My name is Omolade Adumbi. I am a professor at the University of Michigan, and I teach classes on uh, environment, resource distribution, extractive practices, and the post-colonial state. And Omolade walked me through the really complicated origin story of oil production in the Niger Delta. It started back in the early 1900s, when a German company called Shell Diekirch started exploring for oil. This got put on the back burner during World War I and then resumed until World War II delayed it again. Until oil was finally discovered in 1956 at a place called Oloibiri in today's Bayelsa state, which is in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. So basically, uh, the history of oil extraction started during the colonial era and continued in the post-colonial state and still continues today. And Nigeria has had a couple of waves of making a lot of money off of that oil, both related to foreign wars. The first time was in the 70s during the Arab-Israeli War, when the U.S. was under an embargo from several oil-producing countries in the Middle East because of its support of Israel. And so the U.S. and its allies shifted to buying oil from Nigeria. And then the second time was in the 90s during the Gulf War for similar geopolitical reasons. But at the same time, Nigeria was making a lot of money from oil. Then the crisis in the areas that produces the oil actually started during this period because a lot of communities who were the oil-bearing communities in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria started making demands and asking for benefits from this oil revenue that was streaming into the parts of the, of the Nigerian state. Unfortunately, the Nigerian state, which was uh, being led by some military hunters at that time, didn't uh, pay attention or take seriously some of the demands of the Niger Delta communities. And in a lot of these communities, uh, there are no pipe bomb water, no schools, no hospitals. And uh, these are basic necessities of life that they were asking for. They were asking for improvement in their conditions of living, asking for a clean environment. But uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, increase in uh, oil revenue did not match benefits for the people whose land and resources were being pillaged by the multinational corporations. So the 1990s started witnessing a lot of protests against multinational oil corporations, protests against the Nigerian state to such an extent that uh, one of the leading environmentalists at this time, a playwright uh, and an author, Ken Sarawewa, led one of the protests 
and eventually he lost his life through the process. He and eight others, called the Agoni Nine, were executed by the Nigerian state in 1995. The Agoni, by the way, are a minority group in the Niger Delta that have been incredibly impacted by oil production there. I call what is going on in the entire Niger Delta area as a site where complex actors are engaged in the process of claim making on behalf of the communities and that these complex actors are the state, then the multinational corporations who are the allies of the state, then you have NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and there are two categories of NGOs. And the first category are those NGOs that collaborate with multinational corporations. And the second category of NGOs are those that are advocacy NGOs, or what you might call environmental advocacy NGOs, who advocate for the environment as well as for the communities. Then the fifth group are the insurgents. And the insurgents emerged in the early 2000s. A lot of individuals and groups in the region realized that, well, if you protest peacefully against the state, you get killed. So if you take up arms against the state, you get killed. So why don't you resort to an armed insurrection against the state? Because whether it is peaceful or not, the end result is going to be the same thing. And importantly, this complicated story is different from the oil narratives we typically hear. So usually this international development story is told like this. Natural resources are discovered. The community who lives there has to adapt to change their way of life, but in exchange for jobs and wealth and being transported from poverty into comfort and modernity. But the Agoni people were much worse off after the oil industry came. It wasn't just that they were not getting the benefits of oil but that they were also living in an environment that is being pillaged on a daily basis by the oil corporations. So and a lot of the communities lost their livelihood. You know, these are farming communities, fish farming and other agricultural practices that the communities have known for centuries got destroyed. And their daily oil spills that spills into their water, spills into their environment, and basically destroys their environment. So with that background, let's get into the short story. What the tapster saw follows a palm wine tapper, which is someone who extracts sap from palm trees so that it can be turned into an alcoholic drink. And his profession is not accidental. We see a glimpse into an economic production process that was prominent before oil became Nigeria's dominant export. But what happens to the tapster on this particular day is he falls from the tree, and he goes into this deep dream. The story actually says that he dies for several days before coming back to life. And in this liminal state, he sees into the future, all the things that will happen on the land where he taps palm trees when it becomes the property of an oil company. When the tapster ends up in his dream, which forms the bulk of the story, the tapster has initially fallen out of a tree. He's banged his head. That was Rose Casey. I am Rose Casey. I am an assistant professor of English at West Virginia University. And she has written about Oakry's representations of oil in this story. And he finds himself in this really unnerving forest. He identifies gravestones. Um, and those gravestones 
are representative of the huge toll on human life. The tapster sees a single palm tree. So instead of there being many, 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 many palm trees, there is now only one left. The tapster identifies acid in the feel of things. And there it might seem upon reading the story that the tapster is describing this uh, kind of uncanny environment where he has found that he is in some kind of nightmare vision. But equally at the same time, this Okri is here making a reference to acid rain, which is caused by oil extraction, petroleum production, especially in the particularly environmentally damaging ways that occur in the Niger Delta. So we have Okri recognizing that that oil extraction in the Niger Delta causes damage to the rivers, to the soil, to the trees, to the sky. It causes damage also to the people who live there, who find that, quote, in that world the sun did not set, nor did it rise. This is a, an environment where, in a totally holistic sense, everything that lives there is, all living beings are affected. That last part, the sun did not set section, is talking about the practice of gas flaring, which is the combustion of unwanted gas that's generated through oil extraction and production processes. It generates intense flames and noise. And gas flaring is incredibly common in Nigeria. It's used 80% of the time as a way to dispose of the natural gas that is a byproduct of oil extraction. In the global north, we're looking at 3 or 4% that gas flaring is used 3 or 4% of the time. In talking about it, the short story creates a nightmarish effect. In that world, the sun did not set, nor did it rise. It was a single, unmoving eye. In the evenings, the sun was like a large crystal. In the mornings, it was incandescent. The tapster was never allowed to shut his eyes. But it's also describing the results of gas flaring kind of literally. It's used so commonly in Nigeria because it is the cheapest method of disposal. It is very rarely used in the global north, in the United States, for example, which is a large oil-producing region too, because it's incredibly disruptive. It causes such extensive light pollution that people can't sleep. And not only that, as Rose mentioned before, it is also tied to acid rain and health issues. So it is impossible to look at those discrepancies and not see a racialized difference. It's impossible to look at the discrepancy between how often gas flaring is used in Nigeria and how little it is used in the global north and not think that's because the lives of the people in the global north are valued more by these companies that operate in both regions. The story also represents oil as moving, active, alive in this place. The oil comes out of the ground and it seems like a a multicolored snake. And the way it is described appears like an oil slick. So it is... It is transparent, it is luminous, it is roseate. This so-called multicolored snake immerses itself into the river and at that point, quote, the color of the water changed and it became transparent and luminous. The snake's skin burned with a roseate flame. And if you know anything about the Niger Delta and oil extraction, then you might start to think, huh, 
there's something funny going on here. It seems like it's reading perhaps a little bit like an oil slick, but it's only when you start to do more research into the practices of oil extraction that you start to realize that the specific elements are entirely bound up with the huge amount of oil spills in the Niger Delta. There are nearly 11 million gallons of oil spilled each year in this very beautiful, now incredibly damaged part of the world. And I think representing oil as a snake does something else too, even beyond dramatizing the impacts of oil spills. It creates a sense of agency or power in the oil. We often think of agency as intentionality, something we typically consider only humans capable of. But if we think of agency instead as relating to actions or effects, some scholars argue we could better conceptualize what's happening in a climate-altered world. Because once we take the oil out of the earth, it takes on a life of its own, sort of distanced from the initial extraction. Like when we think back to gas flaring as causing not only acid rain, but health problems and insomnia, and also adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, which contribute significantly to climate change, we can start to see how we've unleashed something that keeps moving beyond us, keeps making an impact beyond the initial human choice to unleash it. Okri's tapster hears a voice at one point that says, you humans are so slow, you walk 2,000 years behind yourselves. And I can't help but think about how fossilized carbon in the atmosphere can stay there for up to a thousand years, making it up to 10 lifetimes separated from the initial human action that helped put it there. Rose also pointed out some really interesting ideas about property law and environmental law in the story and in the real world. The reason that I started thinking about property law in what the tapster saw is because of that amazing moment very early in the story where there is the there's a sign in the forest that warns the central character, the tapster, no trespassing. The first sign says trespassers in danger. And then later on, the tapster comes across a second sign that says trespassers will be persecuted. So we see a shift first from the tapster having worked on this land for decades to then being warned that he's now in danger by occupying it, and then finally being threatened with persecution for his presence there. So the question of land ownership, who has the right to be where and how and why that changes, is brought to the forefront. Property law is globalized. Nigerian property laws are substantially derived from the English tradition, which is specifically individualist and based on having dominion over the land. So this idea of private land ownership, how we typically think about land ownership today, comes from John Locke and also William Blackstone in the late 17th century. And this model was exported to other parts of the world, like Nigeria, through colonialism. So we have a way of thinking about the land as something individual humans own and make use of for profit. And strangely, this frame bleeds into environmental policy as well. There are a number of different legislative acts in Nigeria that were passed to try to ensure that the Nigerian state would maintain absolute control over 
oil that was discovered and extracted in the region. So starting in 1969, there was the Petroleum Act, which bestowed ownership of all Nigerian oil on the federal government. In 1978, there was an act called the Land Use Act, which allowed the state to appropriate land if it was deemed in the overriding public interest. There have been a number of related acts too, some of which are supposedly environmental, but actually are fundamentally based upon oil extraction for accruing wealth for a very small minority of the population. So we can see the story kind of pushing back on a way of thinking about land ownership that leads to nightmarish consequences for the humans and the non-human environment there. And it opens up the imaginative space for other ways of thinking about land ownership. So there has there has been this move to a model of stewardship, and it's a model that has been developed particularly by thinkers, legal theorists, activists in the global south, and particularly by indigenous peoples and people working in legal theory from an indigenous perspective. And the idea is that there can be a relationship to the land that is built on care, or stewardship, rather than extraction and appropriation. So at this point, I wanted to zoom out a bit and think a little more broadly about African literature and the environment. So I reached out to a specialist in that area, Kajitan Ieka. And by the way, as you're listening, you might occasionally hear a baby crying in the background. It's COVID times as we're recording, so you know how it is. My name is Kajitan Ieka. I'm an associate professor of English at Yale University. I'm originally from Nigeria. I moved here from there in 2009 to do graduate school. And I teach classes in African and global world literatures. Um, but more specifically, in terms of my research, I'm interested in the ways that um, narratives, cultural productions deal with questions of the environment um, and climate change. He wrote a book called Naturalizing Africa, Ecological Violence, Agency, and Postcolonial Resistance in African Literature. There's a sense in which the African literary tradition has focused primarily on the human condition. It's been about people suffering. But then the more I looked, I realized that the stories that I grew up with as an African, you know, were stories that thought about humans and non-humans as entangled, as, you know, imbricated in a relationship. So the book talks about three different ways to think about this phrase, naturalizing Africa. The first describes how Africans were represented in colonial and slavery discourses as animalistic or existing in a state of nature. They were naturalized in order to dehumanize them to enforce the logic of slavery. The second is kind of like how we use the term naturalize in citizenship discourses. Like when someone becomes naturalized, they become accepted into a new group. And this describes colonial practices of bringing Africans into what the West deemed modernity, which sometimes involved distancing them from nature, or what we might call trying to civilize people. And then the third is one of the goals of his book, which is to put back the connection to the natural world that used to be there, not in a way that reduces humanity, but in a way that recognizes our interdependence with the natural world, and to notice how that interdependence has always been present in a lot of African literature. There's an ethical relation to the other, to the animal that was there, that, to the forest, to, to the earth. So that was what the colonial discourse you know, used against the Africans. Now, as far as I'm concerned, to 
move away from that ethical relation is to sit the ground. What he's saying is the first two definitions of naturalizing have discouraged those invested in anti-colonialism and in social justice from also being invested in environmental concerns. In order to elevate the needs of humans, to assert humanity that's been questioned, to prove a level of civilization that's also been equated with humanity, there's been a pressure to push away the environmental. But to do this is to seed the ground, to let these racist ideas win. At the beginning of the African literary tradition, the argument was that, you know what, let's focus on the nation. You know, we can deal with women questions later. We can think of, think of gender later. Let's ground our concern with displacing the colonizers. Why can't they go both together? My thinking as an African literature is challenging us to not say one at a time. Let's deal with humans first, then we'll come deal with questions of ecology later. No, they can go together. And our lives are intertwined in many ways, so it makes sense to treat them together. And one of the ways African literature does this is through what we in the West might call magical realism. On one hand, I see what it's trying to do. On the other hand, in the African context, you know, there is often nothing magical about the issues, the things, the kind of characteristics of that genre. A big concern with the categorization of magical realism, and this has been written about by scholars like Harry Garuba and Michael Valdez-Moses, is that it imagines Western thinking as scientific, objective, and realistic. And in contrast, it flattens an incredible diversity of often Latin American and African cultural traditions and ways of understanding the world as magical, meaning unscientific, sometimes primitive, not to be taken seriously, and basically all the same. So the argument is that lumping a bunch of diverse works into this category suggests that any mode of understanding the world that is different from the dominant Western way of thinking is fantastical, anti-scientific, and so on. When actually, like we talked about in the beginning with the fairy tale of oil development, we are not without magical thinking in the West. We have our own fantasies to work to see beyond. That magic gets complicated when you now begin to think about the intricacies of oil, the slickiness that we find when we think about oil as snake in a sense. We began to see different, different things begin to happen. Labor becomes implicated. We don't think about labor when we think about magic, because magic appears, ta-da, there is no effect. Magic just happens. But when we think also of the environment, we see the devastation in Niger Delta. Environmental humanities thinkers like Bruno Latour like to talk about this idea of the disenchantment of nature. That we used to think of animals, storms, and other elements in the natural world as potentially spiritually connected, but definitely connected to us, relevant to what happens to us in our survival. But in the last couple hundred years, the thinking is we have disenchanted the environment, meaning started imagining it as static, as background, as unable to cause effects on us because we have so fully contained it, both in the sense of scientific understanding and of land ownership and maintenance. And the argument is that in order to fully grapple with what we have unleashed with global climate change, we need to re-enchant our thinking about the environment meaning we need to see the atmosphere, water systems, species decline, and so forth as not background activity, but action that is happening around and to us. And because this way of thinking aligns with many indigenous cultural ideas. 
There's a resurgence of this attention, attentiveness to indigenous cosmologies. And this is not just among Africans or indigenous peoples in America. No, it's also Europeans, you know, thinking about these value systems. So the so-called primitive minds, the so-called primitive cultures is not something that, we, you know, everybody is thinking that maybe we need to do more with. It decommodifies the earth, which, you know, that commodification of everything including human beings, that's really the problem we're dealing with when it comes to the ecological crisis. This has been Novel Climate. I hope you'll read the short story What the Tapster Saw by Ben Okri and check out his other works as well. His most recent novel is The Freedom Artist. Big thanks to our narrator, Chimdi Ehezia, and guests Omaladi Odunbi, Rose Casey, and Kajitan Ihika. I'm Megan Modafferi.